very good to see you here at the first session of this term's London Aesthetics Forum. Um, before we start, I'd like to thank the British Society of Aesthetics for generously supporting this lecture series. And I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Tom Stern, who is a lecturer in philosophy and academic director of European Social and Political Studies at University College London. He has a PhD from Cambridge University, and he also studied at the University of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought. His interests are in late 19th century and early 20th century European philosophy and literature. He works a lot on Nietzsche, and he is currently working on the relationship between philosophy and theatre. And today he will present on the representation of history in place in a paper that's called History in the Making, Theatre and the Past. Thank you very much. Um, so thank you very much for having me. Um, the introduction was a lesson in uh, being careful about what you write on your website, um, which uh, I will take note of and address in the future. Um, so thank you for the introduction, and, and yeah, thank you all for coming. Um, this paper comes out of work I'm doing on philosophy and theatre. I'm, I'm writing a, a book about various interactions between uh, philosophy and plays, and one of the chapters is going to be about history plays, um, and this paper comes out of some of the work that I did there. That's a bit of the background. Now, uh, I want to begin with quite a sort of simple, and if not exactly every day, then I hope you'll think not uncommon, event uh, at, at a history play, after a history play, uh, where I want to imagine we go to the history play uh, with a friend, uh, the friend has the good fortune of not being well-versed in aesthetics and philosophy, and we struggle to suppress our envy um, at that, but she doesn't. Uh, and at the end of the play, uh, it, I'm, going to, I'm going to say it's Julius Caesar, as I'll discuss in a moment, it doesn't really matter what it is, but I'm going to say it's Julius Caesar. At the end of the play, she asks, she asks whether, it, whether it happened like that, whether she thinks it happened like that, whether we think it happens like that. Um, I don't want to give her an answer. I don't think it's a mad question. Um, I don't think she's fundamentally mistaken the nature of the performance. She didn't rush down onto the stage and yell at Caesar that he'd really better read that note. Um, she knows what it was. It was a play. It was a history play. And she's asking about the relationship between the play and the events that the play in some sense depicts or refers to or corresponds to or is about. Uh, philosophers have ruined all of those phrases in various different ways, but I trust it's clear what I mean. So, a couple of things about the question before I move on to some possible answers or possible strategies for answers. Uh, the first thing, as I've said, is it's a plausible question. There's nothing kind of crazy about it. Uh, the second thing is it might be a common question, um, and there's nothing wrong with philosophers answering questions that people commonly ask. Um, the third thing is that it's a comparative question. Uh, she's not, I take it, just asking about what happened in Rome. Um, she's asking about the relationship, in some sense, between what we just saw, um, the play, the performance of the play, and what happened in Rome. Finally, uh, her question is not necessarily, not necessarily related to the aesthetic value or the literary value of what we just saw. So it isn't necessarily... Uh, the thought that the more accurate this is, the better it is as a play. Now, it might be, 
that the more accurate it is as a history, the better it is as a play. Some, some writers on this subject think that that's mad. I don't think that that's mad. It might be that your view of the play is that it will be more impressive as a literary work if it also, as it happens, is an accurate history. I want to remain neutral on that. Um, that's not obviously what the question is about. Uh, so what could we say? Well, uh, one kind of thing we could say, of course, is yes. Um, or we could represent a set of views that I want to sort of put under the umbrella notion of yes. For topical reasons, I will refer to them as the yes campaign, um, though that will die away shortly, I'm sure. But anyway, for the moment, they are the yes campaign. Um, and there are various ways you could take that view. So, look, one thing you can say is that uh, history plays like Julius Caesar have often been thought to be valuable as educational tools. Um, now, just by way of an example, the supposedly the person who's known as the first modern director, uh, someone called Georg II of Saxe-Meiningen, I don't know if probably most people haven't heard of Georg II, but anyway, the first modern director was also a student of archaeology, something very unmodern. And he used to put on Julius Caesar and other Roman plays by Shakespeare specifically as a way of teaching people about history. I take it, therefore, that he would say yes. Um, he even did some more to the play to make it more historical, so the settings were made to look more like ancient Rome. There were, there were sort of developments in archaeology that made that possible. Uh, and he corrected some of the mistakes, because Shakespeare made some changes. Well, I, I shouldn't say mistakes. He corrected some of the things that Shakespeare uh, chooses to change based on the sources, notably where Caesar dies. Uh, Shakespeare has Caesar die in a place where he didn't actually die. And so Georg II switched it back. Um, the trouble with this as an answer is I don't think it's quite what our imagined companion was asking. Um, so to ask if it happened like that isn't the same thing as to ask, can I learn anything from that? I mean, presumably the answer is yes. There's all sorts of things you can learn from it. You can learn things about the play. You can also learn things about Rome more generally. I mean, quite what those are will depend on you and it will depend on the play. But I take it that there's basically nobody who thinks that you can't learn anything from the performance. So that's not quite what we're asking. There are also other more philosophical accounts which I would put under the umbrella of the Yes campaign. Um, Lukács being one of the most famous ones who describes history plays including Shakespeare as examples of basically expressing social collision. Um, there are colliding social forces at work in history socioeconomic forces primarily, and plays are able to express those through the characters and the conflicts that arise between the characters. That's obviously something which he traces back through Marx to Hegel. Um, Agnes Heller has written a recent book uh, which praises Shakespeare as a historian and praises Shakespeare as a philosopher of history. I assume, therefore, that she'd want to say yes as well. Um, but for various reasons, I'm going to suggest that those aren't quite the approaches that I think we should take. Um, in the case of Lukács, uh, and he deserves more time than I can give him, but in the case of Lukács, uh, clearly there's just a set of assumptions going on there that we can't take for granted anymore. Most of them Marxist, not all of them Marxist, about how plays work. But more specifically, uh, for Lukács, the, those of you who know this will be familiar with it, but for those of you who aren't, um, the, the collisions that are expressed in a history play are just as much, perhaps if not more, about the time in which the play is written 
as they are about the time in which the play is performed. So what Shakespeare is doing writing Julius Caesar for Lukács is there are collisions in Rome, there are collisions in Shakespeare's own time. If those things, as it were, resonate with each other, then you get to write a play about them. But if they don't resonate, you can't write a play about them. Um, that's part of his literary theory, and I'm not going to pursue that anymore. But anyway, for those reasons, I don't think it's quite right to answer the question in that way. Um, and Agnes Heller uh, has a view which is really just about Shakespeare. Um, I, don't, uh, uh, I don't find it terribly compelling, but in any case, it is just about Shakespeare, not about anyone else. And I'm looking for something a little bit more general. Now, of course, anyone in the Yes campaign um, is going to have to deal with obvious factual inaccuracies in the play. I've already said that Gale the Second deals with this by basically correcting them. Um, Lukács deals with this by uh, arguing that what's really at stake here is social conflict, and social conflict is a completely different kind of thing from factual inaccuracy. So it doesn't matter, for example, that Caesar dies in the wrong place, because the, the conflict between Brutus and Caesar is exhibited in the right kind of way. And Agnes Heller takes things one further and argues that the factual inaccuracies uh, make it better as history, um, which is part of the reason why this is a sort of a strong view and in some ways perhaps an implausible one. So there are anachronisms in Julius Caesar. For example, there's a ticking clock um, and she has an argument that, that the inclusion of the ticking clock makes it better historically um, and that's, I'm afraid, just a bit too crazy for me. So I'm not going to pursue that at this point. So there's a second category of answers we could give uh, if somebody asked this and those answers... Uh, could that answer, those answers are all along the lines of that the question we've been asked is in some sense the wrong kind of question. It's just not the right kind of question to ask about what we just saw, namely the play. Um, there are various ways of doing this, and in each case I'm afraid I can't give them the attention they properly deserve, but I'll wave my hand in their general direction. Um, one kind comes from Aristotle. Aristotle, of course argues that plays are just not the kind of thing that should deal with history. Um, this is his argument about poetry more generally. You've got philosophy, philosophy deals in universals. You've got history, history deals in particulars. And poetry and drama is a kind of poetry is the kind of thing that deals with universals. Um, so that's, that's that. So what Aristotle effectively would answer is uh, you shouldn't be saying did it happen like that? You should be saying, does it happen like that? Is it the kind of thing that happens? Or rather more long-windedly, um, is this the kind of thing that happens of necessity or for the most part? That's the kind of question he's interested in asking in relation to plays. It's not to say he couldn't answer it. Right? That's not the point. The point is, it, you could give an answer, but you really shouldn't be doing this. This is not the kind of thing you should be asking. A second kind of wrong question answer... Uh, comes from Hayden White and various people working in that line who effectively want to argue that since the question is about the relationship between history and fiction and since those things are really in some sense the same thing uh, we've got a kind of category error here. I mean the person asking the question is asking is the, is the fiction like the history and fiction and history are the same thing? So it's not really, that's not really the point. Uh, and there are various ways of expanding that thought, um, which I'm not going to go into now. And finally, uh, more familiar to those in, in, in so I guess, philosophy, the discipline, there's the answer of Walton and various other people like Walton 
including Lamarck and Olson and various others. And um, I take their answer to, to this to be along the lines that fictions are just not the same kind of thing as histories, and Julius Caesar is a fiction. And fiction simply takes us away from the realm of true and false, or real or not real. If you're Walton, then our companion has, without knowing it, been playing a game, and the game is a game of make-believe, and it doesn't make sense in an important way to ask whether uh, what is true, you wouldn't like that, but true in a game of make-believe is true in the real world. That's just not the kind of thing you should be asking. Um, for Lamarck and Olson, there's this matter of uh, the fictional stance and taking or construing something as a fiction. So what we should be doing is construing this as fiction. And no one's denying you can learn things from this stuff, but really asking about its relationship with history is, as it were, one step too far. Um, now, I'll give some reasons why I think that's not the right way in a moment. Um, but then, obviously, the third kind of answer we can give to the question is no. And I'm going to be suggesting that we give the answer no, but I'm going to be suggesting there's a lot more to say about it along the way. And just to be clear about this, the no is not because Shakespeare wasn't got the facts wrong. The no is about history plays in general. The no is saying, look, even if you got the facts right, even once they're corrected, even once Gail II has edited the folio edition and made Caesar die in the right place and got rid of the ticking clock, it's still not... It's still the, the answer, the correct answer to... I wonder if it happened like that, is still going to be no. Um, to get there, it's going to be necessary to give a definition. And so what I've got next is some defining features of what I take, what I take to be defining features of history plays. Um, first of all, and this is obviously not good enough, but first of all, you've got to expect proper names uh, referring to real people and real places. That's not going to be enough obviously, because most fiction, most written fiction does that. Uh, Hamlet does that. It talks about Denmark, and Hamlet is not a history play. Uh, the second point being that the events uh, depicted in some sense correspond to events that really happened. Note, not to say that they happened like that, that would preempt the question, but they did, in some sense, really happen. These are real events. Uh, the trouble with that, one of the troubles with that, is that all sorts of plays do that which are not history plays. To take one sort of obvious example, uh, if I write a play based on my childhood experiences, um, Tennessee Williams does write plays based on his childhood experiences and calls them memory plays. And a memory play is a play about events that really happened, but The Glass Menagerie is not a history play. And it's not a history play, uh, I would suggest, and that moves us on to number three, because it's not about real events which happened which are in some sense public. Um, if you think about what distinguishes uh, Tennessee Williams' childhood from Julius Caesar's death or the Battle of Agincourt or various battles or, um, and other things that are uh, displayed in history plays, those events are public. Um, but even that's not quite enough. And that's not quite enough because, and this is where uh, I guess the philosophers get their hands on things, all these thought experiments about the accidentally true uh, work of fiction that people, various people have discussed. Uh, Ryle, um, and among many others, uh, if you wrote a play of Shakespeare had written Julius Caesar, uh, supposing Julius Caesar is very accurate and so on and so forth, uh, without actually knowing anything about it at all, and had accidentally written a play, etc., 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 then it would be a play which referred to real people, 
um, the events of which really happened and which are public, though he didn't know it. Um, and yet, I suspect we wouldn't want to call that a history play if we knew that that's what had happened. So that's why I've put number four, which is that I think it expects uh, some kind of responsible engagement with the sources. Uh, as a matter of fact, the main writers of history plays, certainly the ones that I'm talking about, all do that. Uh, Shakespeare engages very closely with Plutarch, with Suetonius and with others. Well, sorry, in, um, engages very closely with Plutarch and with Suetonius and others. Um, uh, Pushkin, who wrote Boris Godunov, was also a historian and was certainly working with history sources. Buchner, I'll talk about in a moment, was working with primary material and so on and so forth. Um, so it's quite standard to expect them to be, if not historians, as they are in some cases, then at least people who are interested in the sources and are engaging with them in a responsible way. Again, to give you a sense of what I mean, when Shakespeare alters things, people ask why. You know, he did... Um, he reads Plutarch, and then he changes things. And when he changes things, uh, literary critics will often say, well, it's interesting to note that he changed the source here, and that presupposes the kind of engagement that I'm talking about. It presupposes that if he writes, if he invents a lion, he invents a lion at one point. You know, it's reasonable to ask why he did that. Um, and it's reasonable to ask why he did that in relation to the sources that he was working with. Of course you can do that with fictional sources as well, but that's beside the point. Okay. And finally, I wanted to make a point, and this is also something which Lukács says, but it's not something that people have, I think, picked up on in quite, quite the right way when they've written about historical fiction in other contexts, that there's a big difference between a historical novel and a historical play, and that's a genre difference. And the genre difference is basically this. A historical novel, it means a fictional story set, in, set sometime in the past, Right? That, that's what it is. So War and Peace is a historical novel because Tolstoy writes about a bunch of fictional characters against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. But a history play is about the historical characters themselves. If you turned War and Peace, which is the story of Nikolai, Andre, and so on, into a play, it wouldn't be a history play because they're made up. Um, and Julius Caesar is not... It's not a story about fictional characters set against the backdrop of turbulent times in the history of ancient Rome. Caesar and Brutus are the turbulent times in the history of ancient Rome. And a history play about the Napoleonic Wars would be a history play about Napoleon. It would have Napoleon centre stage. Lukács makes this point about all sorts of things. For example, I think quite nicely suggesting uh, that if you wrote Lear as a novel, you wouldn't see much of Lear at all. You would be, it, would be a, it would be a novel about Edgar, and then occasionally you would walk in and see the Mad King ranting in the background. You wouldn't have him as a central figure. Um, uh, that, that may not be true, but the point about genre is true, I take it. I mean, history plays are not just set in the past. They are the past, and that's true, certainly, as I say, of all the examples that I want to use. Okay, so... That, those collection of points, and particularly the last one, actually, suggest why I'm against taking what I imagine to be the response of Walton and so on and so forth um, against the question we started with. Because while it might be conceivable with historical fiction, that is, historical novels, to say that primarily these things are made up um, and that the fact that they're historical is in some sense incidental... When you look at the five features of the history play I've set out, it's pretty clear that 
the historic, I mean, history, as in the facts about the past, are not incidental at all um, to the history play. And so saying to somebody who asks, I wonder if it happened like that, that they've misunderstood or that fiction is really about pretending or imagining uh, just doesn't do it. I mean, it may be about pretending and imagining. I'm not saying it isn't. But in this context, that simply doesn't work. History plays are about history, and you need to be responsibly engaged with sources and so on and so forth to do it. Um, there's another, uh, there's another um, point which I wasn't going to mention, but I will mention just in, in case it comes up, which is that I take it that history plays also can't alter the main features of the historical event. Uh, the reason why I'm worried about saying that is because I'm worried that people are going to complain about what the main features are. But I guess the point being, um, Henry V can't lose at Agincourt. That, that's not a history play. Caesar can't fight off Casco and run away. That's not a history play, and so on and so forth. Um, by way of a kind of historical detour, and just to back up the thing I said uh, in the abstract, history plays have been around a while. Um, the first play we have from the first playwright whose works are extant is a history play. It's The Persians by Aeschylus. Uh, and it wasn't, it's, it's not as if, and no one should say it is, that they wrote a lot of history plays. Actually, that's the only history play we have. Um, but clearly there's something interesting about this. There's something about plays which lend themselves to putting bits of the past on stage. Okay. So how am I going to pursue the thought that we should say no to these questions? And the answer to that is that, in effect, what I want to say is that there are two very different versions of the question, and we must take those things apart. I mean, in general, when you're trying to answer what you take to be a kind of question somebody would generally ask, you don't want to do too much of the kind of chromatography stuff, but it seems to me like there are really two very different things that could be going on. And those two things correspond to two different uh, meanings of the word history. Um, one meaning of the word history, of course, is the events themselves, as in there has been a lot of violence across human history. That's across time, as in human action over time. Um, the other one is the academic discipline. Um, going to study history doesn't or doesn't just mean going to study the past. It also means going to study academic ways of investigating, studying and writing about the past. So when somebody asks, is history a science, they're not asking about human events over time. They're not saying, are human events over time a science? They're saying, is the thing that people do who are called historians, is that stuff, is that a science? And those are completely different, I mean, obviously related, but those are completely different things. And so we could interpret this question in, in light of the kind of history as events thought, and we could interpret this question in light of the history as the academic discipline. That's what people call historiography. We could interpret it in the light of that. And what I'm going to suggest we do is look at each one in turn, and the answer to each one in turn, I'm going to suggest, is no. But there are obviously going to be no very different reasons in each case. So that's what, I'm, uh, that's what I would like to do now. So... First of all, there's the notion of history as events, and I take it that the kind of re-energised question in that context would be something along the lines, well, would it have looked, or would it have sounded, would it have looked and sounded like that? 
at the time. Um, would it, is that what it would have been like, let's say, to an eyewitness? And the notion of the eyewitness is the one I'm going to work with, and that's for shorthand the eyewitness question. Right? Is that is when you when you see Julius Caesar, when you see this play going on, to what extent is that like what you would have seen, in some sense? And there are basically two kinds of reasons why I think this is not the why the answer is no. I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable question, but I think the answer is no. Um, the first reason that I think the answer is no is to do with theatre, and the second reason why I think the answer is no is to do with history, that is, history as the event. Um, so, first of all, let's do the theatre reason. I mean, um, I suspect it's Plato's fault, as so much is. I suspect it's Plato's fault that people have been obsessed about theatre and verisimilitude, that's you know, looking like real stuff, um, since they've been writing about theatre, because, of course, it's Plato's basic move that theatre tries to look like the stuff, the stuff tries to look like the forms, you know the rest. Um, and so that's kind of implanted this idea that what theatre is trying to do is look like the stuff. Um, and it isn't. And it wasn't, by the way. I mean, it just never was. And nobody thought it was, uh, apart from him, as far as I can tell. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a dead end. But it's a very, very long... I mean, you have to travel a long way to get to the dead end in terms of history of philosophy. But, I mean, just to take an example, you know, ancient, I mean, the ancient theatre was was vast. I mean, 14,000 people, roughly speaking, would have been watching the tragedy. 14,000 people would have been watching a tragedy. And, you know, Aeschylus' play, the opening of the Agamemnon, begins with a watchman. Now, if you're a watchman talking, you're not going to talk in a way that makes you easily overheard by 14,000 people. And so the idea that these plays were trying to be I mean, naturalist, I mean, in any sense, look like... The, I mean, that's just... That's the that's that's the wrong thing, and and most I mean most playwrights in some sense acknowledge this. Um, Shakespeare, or at least if you permit me to sort of connect something that he I mean in in Henry V the chorus shows up at the start and says I'm really sorry this looks nothing like what happened please can you imagine it for us um, for example right? uh, think when we talk of horses that you can see them though you obviously can't. Um, uh, more, more, more directly, because if, if understandably people don't like to take the words of characters to be the, the words of the authors, but in a preface to Boris Godunov, his history play, Pushkin just says, "This theatre is not very similar. It's just a mistake. Of all the arts, theatre is the worst one at looking like the stuff. I mean, it's just, it's that's just not how it works." So there's a sort of reason from the point of view of history, to, sorry, from the point of view of theatre, to be very sceptical about this idea that when you see the play, you're seeing something that looks like the history. Um, but I want to set that aside because basically I take it that the person who asks that question kind of knows that. I mean, the person who asks that question isn't asking if Caesar died in a theatre with a bunch of people watching. Um, st sorry, strictly speaking, Caesar sort of did die in a theatre, but they um, there weren't lots of people. There weren't lots of people watching, and it wasn't really a theatre. It was sort of a theatre. Anyway. Bad example. Um, I take it back. Strictly speaking, uh, you know, you can just fill in the rest. Okay. Uh, it was a sort of meet. I mean, it was a meeting room attached to a theatre complex, right? The anyway. uh, which makes you wonder why Shakespeare moved it away from the theatre to the capital anyway, because surely him dying in a theatre is kind of a nice thought. But anyway, there we are. Um, okay, so uh, 
the person who's asking us the question is not asking whether it looked... I mean, that's just not what they're asking if they're, if they're not mad. So I take it that what they're asking is something a bit weirder, uh, a bit more the kind of thing that philosophers get upset about, but I take it it's something like this. Look, I've just kind of... I've watched this play. I've had to fill in some of the stuff with my imagination. That's how plays work. Um, you don't need to be Walton to think that. You can be. You don't need to be. You know, I've done some imagining. Um, and I imagined some horses, just like Shakespeare told me to, or I imagined some extra stuff. That's what I did. And, you know, if you take the stuff I imagined together with the stuff that happened and you kind of put those together, and if you make that into a kind of something like how it was and you compare that to the stuff, then was it like that? I mean, that's... And there are going to be different ways of filling that out, and that's difficult. But anyway, there we are. I take it that's what they're asking. Um, and here again, I want to suggest, you know, however we do that imagination stuff, it's philosophically peculiar. However we do it, the answer is no. I mean, it doesn't matter how we do the imagination stuff. And that's to do with how eyewitnesses and something about how history works. Um, so let's just look at eyewitnesses a bit more closely. First of all, um, eyewitnesses are pretty stupid. Uh, that's not their fault. But if something major happens in front of you, you don't know what it is quite often. And if you do know what it is, you don't know why it is. And if you do know why it is, you're very, very unusual as an eyewitness. I mean, if, I don't know... Um, uh, you know, if, if, um, think about eyewitnesses to 9-11, for example. Act, I mean, you know, contemporary actual people watching it happen. You know, now we know what was going on. But if you've been watching it then, you know, the first plane came in and people thought it was an accident. Um, and the second one came in and they thought it wasn't an accident, but they had no idea who was doing it. And nobody had ever heard of the various people involved, and so on and so forth. Eyewitnesses are not particularly good at telling you about what happens. Um, so that's the first thought. Um, the second thought, of course, is that no one eyewitness could possibly have seen what you see when you see an average history play. I mean, when you watch Julius Caesar, you are, as it were, kind of guided through, even if you think you're, even if you think you're an eyewitness, you're being kind of escorted through the history and pointed to the various things. So there you are with one camp before the battle. There you are with another camp before the battle. There you are with the conspirators. There you are with Caesar. You know, no one person... Um, there's no one person, for example, who's on stage the whole time. There's no one eyewitness. So the idea that it would be a compilation of eyewitness accounts, in any case. And when you think about eyewitness accounts, of course, eyewitness accounts are not the same thing as seeing the stuff. Because eyewitnesses, when they write the accounts, go and find out what happened. And then they write about what they saw, knowing what happened. So if somebody writes now their eyewitness account of 9-11... It's going to be a completely different kind of thing unless they're very, very good at remembering exactly what they thought. And it's going to be a very, very different kind of thing um, from what the actual eyewitness stuff was. Um, there's a final thing to say about this, which is to separate even the kind of best eyewitness, that is, even the eyewitness who knows, who knows what's going on, has seen everything, is really you know, well-informed about historical um, and current affairs. Um, even then, there's this suspicion that what they're giving you is going to be anything like what you get from the play. I mean, this is something that comes up when people write about history, and it's something that comes up when people write about fiction in rather different ways. But the basic point is this. Um, the history play, like a history, like an account of a history, um, is essentially something which assumes a bunch of knowledge that comes afterwards. Uh, this is a point made in relation to history, historical accounts in Dante and various other places, and in relation to stories um, by Mink and others. But the basic point is this. I mean, when you go to see the play, the whole point is you already know what's going to happen. 
um, certain kinds of, not all plays, but certainly history plays, um, and certainly the kind of mythic plays, um, Oedipus, I mean, this is Mink, but Oedipus is alive and dead at the same time. I mean, you've got, you've got uh, somebody where you know exactly what's coming. And knowing exactly what's coming puts you in a completely different kind of frame of mind, frame of reference, to what's going on from the person who's watching the stuff as it unfolds. So I take it that question is not quite dead, because somebody could say something like this. Well, look, what I've been doing is assuming that would it look like that means would it look like that to a contemporary eyewitness. And maybe that's not what our companion was asking. Maybe she was asking something different. Maybe she was asking, if I went back in time, if I went back in time and watched it, is this how it would have been? Um, And that deals with the issue of knowing what's coming, because if you magically were transported back in time, you would still know what was coming. Um, and if you were magically transported back in time, you know, you might be able to follow the events and one could fill that out and magically take it around. Um, you'd still need a bit of help, of course. First of all, um, just to kind of state the obvious, you might need someone to, the, to be there to translate for you, um, because you wouldn't necessarily understand what anyone was saying. Um, you might need somebody to escort you to the various events as they happened. You might need somebody to point out who the people were. Um, you know, that's Caesar. Um, there must have been more than one balding 50-year-old in Rome at the time. So that information wouldn't quite do. Um, you might need somebody to tell you maybe a little bit about how procedures worked. Um, when you watched, so you, know, you might want to know what the festivities you were seeing were about, why it was that Caesar was getting this fake crown and how important that was and all that stuff. And all I wish to say about that at this point is that, fine, that may be what our companion means, but um, the kind of person, a sort of super Virgil, you know, somebody who can take you around and show you what's going on, and translate, and point, and indicate, and underline the significance of tell you. Like, that person looks a lot like a historian, doesn't it, basically? I mean, that person looks like the kind of person who might write a book and say, here's my translations of some of the stuff that happened, here are the important parts, here's how Roman constitution works, here's who Caesar was, here's who Brutus was. Like, that's, that's a historian. That's not, I mean, that's, that's not being an eyewitness. Um, And indeed, you do find people describing history in those terms. I'm not saying they're right, but you do find it by way of indication. just want to point that out. So, for example, famously, this is what Hobbes says about Thucydides. Hobbes says the fantastic thing about Thucydides as a historian is he turns the auditor into a spectator. Auditor, of course, because his histories, as Hobbes, they would have been read, um, read out, read out loud. People didn't... um, the best, to the best we know, people didn't read silently to themselves, particularly in the ancient world. So they would have been read out loud um, and people would have listened. And so the idea is that people listening to Thucydides reading out loud are transformed into spectators. But obviously people who read Thucydides um, or have Thucydides read out loud to them are not turned into spectators in the sense that they're just shoved into the DeLorean and then the clock is set for 44 BC and they're, you know, they're not just dispatched right? they're, they're guided 
Hobbes talks about Thucydides setting, setting you into the streets. He, well, setteth. He setteth us into the streets, if you want to be. Um, and I take it that what the setting is, is, is being the historian, right? It's telling you what's going on. It's explaining what's going on. And that, it seems to me, is a much better description of the kind of thing that a history play does uh, than just plunking you in front of big events and letting you get on with it. Because, after all, you're introduced to all the characters, you're told the relevant details that you need to understand, the whole thing is put into a narrative of sorts, we don't need to say much more about what it is, um, and you're told about the... You know, you're not just left to get on with it, you're, you're educated about it in some sense through the course of the show. Um, silly example... Uh, or not a silly example, but just, just one example. Um, Henry V opens with a couple of clergymen, um, but after the chorus, it opens with a couple of clergymen, and the clergymen talk about how wonderful Henry is and how he used to be this kind of wild, uh, youthful figure, but now he's very learned and very scholarly. And then an ambassador from France shows up and acts as if Henry is this wild young thing, and we know he's not anymore, or at least we know the church thinks he's not anymore. And it's about telling us the context in which to understand the historical events, and so on and so forth. That seems like it's not exactly what historians do, as we'll see. It's a little bit like what historians do. So, that, I would suggest, should focus our attention on the second question. And the second question was um, something along these lines, relating to history as a discipline. Right? How does my understanding of this event compare to my understanding that I would get had I read a history book about it. I don't want to just, you know, talk about what history book it would be. It could be all sorts of history books. But roughly speaking, the history play understanding as compared with the historic, written history. I say history book because historiography is typically written. Um, one could then talk about documentaries and so on and so forth. But anyway, I'm going to say history book for the kind of conventional work of historiography. Um, and the first thing I want to say about that, before we get into the kind of details of it, the first thing I want to say about that is that, just note, there are very different possible kinds of answer to this question than there were to the previous one. I mean, the previous one, you've got the event and you've got the play, two events. You've got the event and the event, that is the play. Um, and it's how like the second one, how alike is the second one to the first one. So I guess the range of answers are going to be something along the lines of very alike to not alike, I've suggested not alike. But as it were, it's never going to reach the line, is it? It's never going to be that, unless the, unless the play is the event, in which case it's not really a history play, it's just an event. Um, it's never going to actually get there. So it's about resemblance, but it's not about, or some kind of resemblance, but it's not about actually, you're never going to get there. If the question is how does my understanding of the event compare to reading a history book, the potential answer space is very different because potentially it could be better. Um, unlike the first one, the first one could never be better than the original, um, or the comparative object is something it could never be better than. But of course, in the second case, um, it could be that the history play is actually better than the history book. And not only could it be, um, some people have said that it is. Um, but they're not, of course, saying that it's better than being at the event, I mean, that, that's not the point. Being at the event might or might not be a good way of understanding the event. I mean, being at 9-11 might or might not be a good way of understanding 9-11. I'm not that, not that good, it might be, you know, whatever. That doesn't matter. The point is, how does this compare to the history book? It's a completely different kind of question um, to the first one. And you might think of all sorts of reasons why someone might say yes to this. 
Uh, they might say yes because, in some sense, it's more vivid um, or it's more memorable. Those are two things that come up quite a lot. Um, and I don't want to particularly disagree or agree with that. I just want to notice that that's not quite, it's not quite what we're after. Because although vivid and memorable might be things that we like in history books, that's not an essential kind of characteristic of historiography. I mean, you're going to be... Historians of different kinds are going to find it easy or difficult to write in a way that's memorable and vivid. And if your subject matter happens to be, you know, European population growth during the course of 1600 to 1800, it's going to be difficult to be vivid. And if your historical subject matter is, you know, Casca stabbing Caesar, Caesar fighting off Casca, the other guy is growing, you know, etc., then you might be more... And that, so it's just, that's just not really what... His, I mean, that's, just, that's not a good criterion for discussing it. So it might be true, but it's not what we're after. Um, you, get slightly more, you get slightly more out of another thought, which I've listed as a kind of translation problem, um, though that may not be the best way to describe it. But anyway, um, that thought is sort of something roughly like this. Um, history is stuff happening, and uh, history books are writing stuff down, and there's some real gap there between stuff happening and writing stuff down. Uh, this is a point that's been made in various ways by all sorts of people. Um, uh, to Sertog goes as far as to say that there's basically a paradox in the word historiography, i.e. writing history, because history is not written, uh, unless you're doing the history of people writing stuff down, but you're probably not, um, or you're probably not entirely. So the very idea of writing about this stuff, as it were, turns it into something which it isn't. Um, if I write an account of Caesar's death, you can read the account and you can get information about it, but these are just not... There's just a gulf there. Now, I don't need to say, and I'm not... So I'm not, in the end, going to argue along these lines, but the person who wants to argue along these lines in this context doesn't need to say that that is unbridgeable, that, his, that history writing necessarily falsifies. They don't need to go into... They don't need to be mad, uh, in other words. They don't need to deny that there's any such thing as getting facts about history. They don't need to, they don't need to say that any account of Caesar's death is as valid as any other, because, after all, it's an event and not a... None of that. All it is, it's just, it's just noticing that it's difficult producing a document um, when what you're talking about is an event. And of course, you might argue that in certain cases, a play can do that better than a book, because Caesar's death was an action um, of sorts, and a play about Caesar's death is an action, and therefore you don't find yourself confronted in some sense, with that problem. that you don't have this gulf between what you're doing as the historian and what the event itself was. Um, I'm not, in the end, going to endorse that view, but I take it that it's a view that someone could have. And more or less, though he's writing a long time before those views would get expressed by academics, more or less that is exactly what Buchner says when he writes to his family about his history play. His history play is Danton's death, um, some of you know it, I suspect, others may not. Um, but for those who don't, uh, it's a history play about the French Revolution, and it's a history play which charts the last sort of important moments of the life of Danton, um, who's killed by Robespierre and various others. And writing to his family, Buchner says this, uh, the dramatist is, in my view, nothing other than a historian, but is superior to the latter to the historian, 
in that he recreates history. Instead of offering us bare narrative, he transports us directly into the life of an age. He gives us characters instead of character portrayals, full-bodied historical figures, sorry, misreading, full-bodied figures instead of mere descriptions. His supreme task is to get as close as possible to history as it actually happened. Um, um, he doesn't use exactly the same phrase as von Lanke, by the way, so don't get excited about that. Um, but he says history as it sort of, you know, history as it was. Okay. Uh, now, setting aside the suggestion that it transports us directly into an age, in, I mean, you know, we, I've rejected one way that that might be. So, I, so, but he could be interpreted like that, but I'm not going to. Um, I want to concentrate on the bit when Buchner talks about giving us characters instead of character portrayals. Look, the historian is going to tell you that Robespierre was kind of arrogant and priggish, that he often likes to give speeches which culminated in an offer to sacrifice himself or the ideals he was working with. You know, if, the, if you don't want to do this, that's fine. I will lay down my life. You know, he's often laying down his life. Uh, and he can tell you all sorts of things. But I, Buchner, I, the player, I can, you know, I, I'll, show, I'll show you. And when you watch somebody doing it, you're getting much closer to what it was than anybody possibly could writing it down. I mean, I take it that's what he's saying. Um, and it's worth saying something a bit more about Buchner's method, because he's not just any playwright making this claim. Uh, Buchner's play is approximately one-sixth direct historical source material. Um, most of that is, in fact, people saying the words that they really did say. He's got, you know, he knows what people said, You've got transcripts of what not trans. You've got you've got speeches of Robespierre, speeches of Danton, speeches of Saint Just. You've got them, and he uses them. They're just in the play, so people come on and they say what they said. Now that's not a that's as it were that's Buchner. That's not every history play, but that's where he's coming from. So I take it that that's what he means. You know, you can read Robespierre on paper, or you can watch somebody do it, set up in the right context. And clearly, watching somebody do it is going to be better. And it's going to be better as history. It's going to give you a better impression of what was going on. Like that, that, I think, that's the best way, I think, to understand him. So Buchner is saying yes. Um, how does, uh, um, and not merely yes, he's saying it's better. I mean, he's saying the answer to the question we started with was, you know, you've got a better sense of this, uh, of what had happened in some way. Now, uh, I'll, I'll be saying that this isn't right, um, but before I say it isn't right, uh, I want to just point to two things that won't do as reasons why it's not right, in case there's confusion along those lines. Um, first of all, uh, you might say that Buchner isn't, um, isn't doing better than the historian because he's not telling the whole story. This is, after all, a fraction of what happened uh, in the French Revolution, it's a fraction of what happened in the life of Danton. It's a fraction of what happened in the life of Robespierre, um, and all sorts. Uh, the trouble with that, of, as an objection, of course, is that history books don't tell the whole story either. Um, and you can't possibly expect a history book to tell you the whole story of the French Revolution. That's why there are so many books on the French Revolution. Um, you'd have to go way back, you'd have to go way forward. There's that famous quote... I can't remember who said it. Somebody said that, you know, it's too early to tell, basically, what, what happened. It's too early to understand the French Revolution, um, even now. It wasn't somebody in 1790, by the way. It was somebody kind of recent. 
Um, anyway, so not telling a whole story won't do. You might modify that, by the way, and say that, generally speaking, of necessity, a play is going to have less in it than a book. And I think that's true. Um, so it's less comprehensive. And you might think that comprehensiveness is a virtue of a history book. And I think that's right. But given that the standard academic history book is going to suggest that there are other things you can read to back that up and so on, so there's more to the story than this, is always a part of any academic history. I don't take that as a kind of... Uh, uh, as, a, as a complete sort of... I don't take that as a very good objection, basically. The other thought you could have is that um, the play doesn't merely present facts, which is true. It doesn't merely present facts. In fact, it's not clear that it presents facts at all unless you take it that it's presenting the fact that Robespierre said such and such, which is a kind of weird way of understanding it. Um, anyway, even if you do take it like that, um, neither do historians. Historians do not merely present facts. There are two quite clear ways of getting to that conclusion. One is that mere presentation of facts is characteristic of the annals as opposed to the history books. So the annals is where you put, you know, 2011, so-and-so happens, 2012, this happens, 2013, this happens. And there's no connection between the, two, the, the, between the three things. This is, Hayden White talks about this quite a lot. Um, so you've got the annals, which are just a series of dated statements of fact, but they're not history they're not historiography. I'm sorry, I mean, they may not be history, but they're not historiography. That's not what historiography is. It's not just writing down a series of facts. And the other way you can access the thought that historians don't merely present facts um, is by the kind of thought experiment... Well, but not the thought experiment. I mean, if you just... is by presenting completely non-salient facts. Um, so if somebody, if, if somebody had asked us who Julius Caesar was and we said that he was a kind of minor religious official in Imperial Rome whose uncle was a very important general, we would be saying things that are true. Um, but in some important sense, we haven't been good historians. Uh, so I take it that there's more to it than that. So those two things won't quite do. Uh, there is, however, initially, just to kind of spoil things a little bit for Buchner, uh, there is, however, an obvious restriction, even if he's successful, because he's talking about character portrayal, and he's talking about... Um, portrayal of the events. Now, it might be, I'm going to say it isn't, it might be that Caesar's death is something, together with Caesar and various things, or it might be that Danton's death, together with Robespierre and so on, are things you can present in a much more vivid, and not only vivid, but historically more effective way on stage. But of course, much of what historians do isn't dealing with character portrayal at all, character portrayal may be a part of it. If I'm giving you a history of the Napoleonic Wars, it strikes me that the character of Napoleon is something inescapable. I mean, you, just, you can't tell the story of what's going on there um, unless you tell me... I mean, unless you say something about who Napoleon was and what he was like. That there isn't... That period of history... One could say, I would say, that that, that period of history doesn't exist without Napoleon. So you've got to say something. But you've got to say a bunch of other things too. Uh, and you might want to talk about you know, population density, or you might want to talk about military technology, or you might want to talk about development over time of labour conditions. And all of those things are not things that, in any obvious way, plays can do better, and that's assuming they can do them at all, and they probably can't. So even if he's right, it's very restricted. It's very restricted to characters, and characters aren't all there is to history. Um, uh, Tolstoy is good on that, as anyone else. So even with this restriction, though, there are a couple of reasons why this isn't going to do it for us. Um, and I'll just go through those uh, and then basically 
that's kind of that's come to an end of what I want to say at this point. So one kind of objection is that even if we take Buchner as the model, so not just a history play, but a Buchner-style history play, where you just have people saying the things that they said, dramatised in a historically accurate way, that still isn't what historians do either. It's not just, here's what people said, here's the context in which they said it, here's how they said it, look, there's a person doing it, that's much better. Because historians want to tell you about the sources, and sometimes they want to tell you about things that didn't happen, for example, but that people thought did happen. Sometimes they want to tell you about sources which aren't verbal. Uh, they might want to tell you about pottery remains. You can't just cut and paste pottery remains into a play. Um, they also might want to tell you about myths. Louis XIV never said, I am the state. But it's interesting that people said that he did. And there might be things to say about why people said that he did. Julius Caesar, well, there are all sorts of myths about Julius Caesar. Some of them possibly were true and some of them possibly weren't. Perhaps he was kidnapped by pirates, joked with them that he was going to crucify them, and then actually went to crucify them. But that might be a myth. If it's a myth, where does it come from and what does it tell us about what people thought about him and so on? Now, that's just not available in the history playing model, the thing which tells you about it. I mean, uh, when I say not available at this point, I don't mean it's completely unthinkable that somebody could write a play such that these things happened. Uh, what I'm trying to say is something more general about the genre. That may be a problem, but that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, the second thing which uh, even the kind of supreme Buchner example wouldn't give you uh, is basically showing your working. Um, historians want to tell you how they know things and why they know things, and they want to tell you which bits are more certain than other bits. And that's something that in a performance you can't do unless you have somebody telling you but if you have somebody telling you it's beginning to sound like somebody reading out a history book like nobody really knows what happened but some people said this that's that's just reading out a history book like showing the action the thing that Buchner said players were particularly good at is seeing what happened now suppose for example as it, as is the case right we know who stabbed Julius Caesar first um, that was Casca we don't know who stabbed him second um, we don't know whether there was one person who stabbed him second or whether a bunch of people stabbed him second uh, the performance is going to have to make a decision on that the writer isn't the writer just says well Casca stabbed him and then they all fell upon him with their knives and maybe they fell upon him with their knives in such a way that they stabbed each other like, that's what basically what Plutarch says um, you can't do that on stage like, the very thing that gives it the stuff that Buchner's boasting about, namely filling out all the details to make it look real, fills out details we don't know about. We don't know exactly how Robespierre sounded, but if you've got to have somebody on stage doing Robespierre, they've got to make a choice. And precisely the, I mean, precisely the thing that gives it the extra stuff it is the stuff that historians can actually say, well, okay, no one really knows what happened here. What we do know is this. We think this happened because we've got these ideas, but then that's from this historian, and he gets a bunch of other things wrong, so it probably isn't you know, correct to take that effect. That's, none of that goes into the standard history play. That's, that's, if you did that in a play, it begins to look like something completely different. Um, so, the, I mean, those are the... And, and I, I take it that, basically, you could write a play which dealt with some of these things, but I also take it that the thing that you would produce wouldn't be a history play in the sense that we've been talking about. It would be a different kind of thing. It might be a good play, 
we have not been dealing with what makes and doesn't make a good play, um, but it wouldn't be a conventional history play. So looking back to the original question, um, the person asked us, well, I, wa- I wonder if it happened like that. And as I say, looking to give a general answer to that, a kind of philosophically informed answer which treats the history play in general in relation to its events, what I'm suggesting is no. Um, no in the sense that it's nothing like what looking at it would have been like, either as a person who was a contemporary watching or as an informed person going back. Um, and no, it's not going to give you the same understanding that reading the history book would give you for the reasons that I've just mentioned. Um, and at that point, that's all I have to say. So thank you very much for listening. I look forward to questions.